Okay, people. Um, we're coming in the second part tonight to Psalms of Confession and Lamentations. How to say you're sorry. It's uh, not a prominent theme within the Psalms. There are many fewer Psalms of Confession, Psalms in which you're saying you're sorry, uh, than we would have thought there would be. Um, there, there are a few, of which Psalm 51 is a notable one. Um, and it's an interesting question as to why there are so few Psalms of um, Confession of Sin uh, within the Book of Psalms. Uh, that There is a view in the scholarly world, that, well it's accompanied by the fact that there are several Psalms, uh, several prayers uh, of confession outside of the Book of Psalms, as well as Lamentations. There's uh, Ezra chapter 9 and Nehemiah chapter 9 and Daniel chapter 9, for instance, and one or two, and some other passages. And it's interesting that those are all passages from after the exile. Lamentations is from the exile, and those three prose prayers of confession are from after the exile. And there's a scholarly view that there's something significant about the fact that, that Israel was more um, uh, inclined to be protesting to God and claiming that it was reasonably committed to God and therefore the things that went wrong shouldn't have gone wrong in the first temple period, but that in the second temple period it was more of its sin, more aware of its sin, and more inclined to confess its wrong. Um, there's a chunk of connecting of dots involved in that argument, um, and I'm not sure I want to buy into it too much. Um, I think maybe any generation has to think about whether the balance between its awareness uh, that it needs to be committed to God and it needs to be able to say to God, we are committed to you, the balance between that and saying to God, we know that we've done wrong and we confess it, there needs to be both of those there and, and maybe we need to ask, in any, the church in any generation needs to ask which of those um, it's uh, good at acknowledging and which one does it not, is it not very good at acknowledging. Uh, and we all um, say nowadays that um, it's a strange th thing that the church has lost that capacity to prote protest to God and to have a kind of uh, right uh, confidence in its being God's committed people that makes it possible to look to God and say, why are you treating, it th treating us this way? That's what we need to recover and we're more inclined to go in for what a friend of mine calls worm theology uh, that is a theology that keeps saying, oh, we're terrible, we're terrible, we're terrible, um, which fits, which is there uh, in those Old Testament prayers of confession. Um, and so, and it's quite scriptural, but, but we need to learn the other side to uh, uh, the, the way of speaking to God about our, the nature of our commitment that the Psalms of protest presuppose. But having said all that, there is there, there, is there within the writings uh, in some psalms and in lamentations, an awareness that, that the people of God need to come to God with confession of wrongdoing, need to learn to say, to say how to say, need, need to learn to say um, that you're sorry. Uh, within the book of psalms, then, Psalm 51 is the textbook example. Um, you've read that, and uh, a thing I need to talk about uh, is a thing, an issue that you raise, many of you raised in your postings, 
that when you came to read Psalm 51, uh, you realised how weird it was for, this, for David to be praying this way um, in the context that the uh, heading to the introduction to the psalm uh, gives to it. It's one of a number, as I've said on this sheet, that um, make a link, a, a number of introductions to psalms that make a link with a specific incident in David's life. Uh, and there's a list of them. And one of the things that happens when you compare the introductions to these psalms with the psalm itself is that you can see both, on the one hand, points of contact that fit with a link between the incident in David's life that the introduction refers to, and also you can see points of contrast that makes it seem odd that this psalm uh, should link with that incident in David's life as the story in um, 1 and 2 Samuel tells it. So the puzzling, the puzzling question is, what might explain both those features? That is, the ways in which you can see it's appropriate and the way in which it isn't. Um, let me talk about that in general terms and then come back to Psalm 51. Um, the other headings, the other introductions to the Psalms um, are introductions that relate the Psalm in some way to uh, the nature of Israel's worship and the practice of Israel's worship. Uh, there's an equivalent, a sort of equivalent question uh, about Psalm 30 that one or two people mentioned in their posting. Uh, where it says at the top, a song at the dedication of the temple uh, of David. Uh, now, that's weird, somebody pointed out in their posting, because there's no reference to the temple uh, in, the, in this psalm anyway. Um, a thing that they, that, that uh, illustrates... Well, there, there is a problem anyway about any references to David and the temple, because there wasn't a temple in David's day. Um, David commissioned his son to build it. So any talk about the temple in regard to a psalm that's written by David, well, raises questions. Maybe it's a reference to, what, to the kind of sanctuary they had, but they didn't have a temple. Uh, the Hebrew word for dedication um, uh, is, anybody know? The word Hanukkah. Um, and the most plausible view about the, uh, that reference to dedication in the heading and the introduction to this psalm, in my opinion, is that it relates to, to, to the use of the psalm on the occasion when the temple was rededicated, uh, which is commemorated by the Jewish festival of Hanukkah um, each December. That is, it's the occasion when the temple had been desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, in, and, and, and in the tests, you're all good at Antiochus Epiphanes because he comes last in all the lists of dates, so it's kind of fairly easy. Um, but it's quite good to have established for yourselves that the last guy, more or less, in the Old Testament is Antiochus Epiphanes, uh, who um, prevented the community in Jerusalem in his day from offering worship in accordance with the Torah and established in the temple the, the original abomination of desolation, we don't know quite what that was, but some kind of statue or image of Zeus or image of God or something of that kind that was a totally disgusting and abhorrent and terrible thing to have there in the temple of Yahweh. Um, uh, the action of Antiochus um, stimulated many of the Jews in Jerusalem to rise in rebellion uh, with uh, something of the 
attitude that I was talking about just before the break, actually, in that for this little Judahite people to rebel against the might of the Seleucid Empire of Antiochus was an extraordinarily stupid thing to do. But God honoured it, and God gave them the victory. Um, and they saw off the authority of the Seleucids in Jerusalem. They were able then to be in control of their own destiny for a hundred years after that, until the Romans showed up. Uh, and, and obviously they celebrate, they needed, obviously they needed to cleanse the temple uh, from what had been done to it and they needed to rededicate it. It was that there was thus an occasion uh, of the rededication of the temple. You don't read about this in the book. The book of Daniel tells you about the abomination of desolation, tells you uh, promises that God is going to deliver the people in the visions in, in Daniel. Um, that's uh, described as something that God is going to do. Uh, but the nature of the book of Daniel isn't to tell you what happened, because its visions are promising what God is going to do. Uh, the account of what actually did happen then appears in the books of Maccabees uh, in the deuterocanonical writings, the apocryphal writings. The temple thus is rededicated properly for the worship of Yahweh, and from then on there is a celebration uh, of that dedication. Now in the Jewish celebration there are, there's particularly um, a, a miracle about light which doesn't, there isn't any reference to in, in Daniel, and um, that's not the, the focus. The, the, the point about the word Hanukkah is uh, it's referring to dedication. And as I say, for my money, that's the plausible uh, occasion to link with this psalm with, with. And then you can see then, although it may be, the alternative view is that this psalm was used at the dedication of the temple after the exile uh, in the story in Ezra 1-6. to and we have recited, haven't we, that Ezra had nothing to do with the return from the exile. Did we recite that? Ezra had nothing to do with the return from the exile. But in the story at the beginning of the book of Ezra, when Ezra hasn't been born yet, uh, and when the temple is, uh, is rebuilt uh, under the, um, prophet, in, in, in response to the prophecies of Haggai and Zechariah and under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, uh, the temple, of course, gets dedicated. So possibly this psalm was used on that occasion. Either way, what you've got in the introduction to the psalm, as is commonly the case, is a reapplication, a reuse of the psalm that's in a different connection from the one that the psalm itself originally presupposed. And, and that explains why you don't find anything that when you read Psalm 30 itself, you'd never guess it was anything to do with the dedication of something. Um, uh, and that rather what the, the introduction is telling you is that the psalm came to be used on that occasion which um, didn't correspond to its original usage. It's typical of the introductions to the Psalms that they relate to the way in which the Psalms were used. Now, if you start from that fact with regard to Psalm 51, um, then uh, you uh, uh, may find illuminating what I think is the most intelligible suggestion about how these introductions to the Psalms that refer to particular incidents in David's life manage to combine... Uh, aspects of the way in which the link works really well and aspects of the way in which it doesn't work. Because Brevard Charles' suggestion in the article that I've uh, mentioned there on the sheet is that these are what you might call Bible study notes or lectionary notes. They're not authorship notes. Uh, in the way in which worship works in the Episcopal Church and in the Catholic Church and sometimes at least in the Presbyterian Church and others, uh, you have a collection of scriptures that you read uh, each Sunday, which are meant in some way to relate to one another. Meant, that is, by the people who drew up the lectionary. 
Um, so we would usually have an Old Testament lesson, a psalm, a, a, a lesson from the, a reading from the epistles, and a reading from the Gospels. And you won't necessarily be able to see links between all of them, but you'll see some kind of links. Uh, now, the, lection, those, the lectionary is not saying these passages were all written together, or written in relationship with each other. It's not even saying that they um, are all about exactly the same thing. The lectionary uh, is saying there are overlaps between these passages. You'll find it illuminating to look, um, at, the, to look at them in light of each other. And Charles' suggestion is that's the case with these introductory notes uh, in the Psalms. They are Bible study notes or lectionary notes, not authorship notes. Uh, they don't tell us about who wrote the psalm when. They invite us to read this psalm and this bit of David's story alongside each other. Um, and um, thus we may be able to see one kind of situation when this, this prayer might be prayed or one kind of prayer that might be prayed in this situation. Um, and the effect then of that introduction is to bring the psalm and the story alive for the congregation. It's the same thing as happens uh, when people try to link many other of the David psalms with specific incidents in David's life. Uh, it may be, that may be a helpful exercise in interpretation, um, in imagination, but it's not a piece of historical study. Now, there's no evidence that Charles's theory is right about why these headings, these introductions are what they are, but it does explain both of those features of the introductions. That is, uh, it explains the way that they partly fit and partly don't fit. They, uh, they indicate for you, if you like, that the relationship between the story in 2 Samuel and the psalm is a Venn diagram kind of relationship. It's not a concentric circle kind of relationship. The introductions don't tell us that David wrote the psalm then. They indicate that it will be helpful to look at the psalm and the story alongside each other. Uh, and that actually applies whether or not we think that David actually wrote the psalms. So the question then is, what happens when you do a comparison of Psalm 51 and the story in 2 Samuel? Um, and what happens is, as some of you did in your postings, you note both points of contact and points of difference. Um, and so it makes you think about some facts about the story in the psalm. For instance, in the psalm... David uh, makes these appeals uh, for purging and cleansing and forgiveness and for God to hide his face from his sins and to create a clean heart for him and put a new and right spirit within him and so on and restore to him the joy of his salvation. And as far as you can tell from reading 2 Samuel, that didn't happen. God didn't do that. David's story, which begins to unravel in the uh, story of David and Uriah and Bathsheba, continues to unravel pretty consistently, really, through the rest of his life. That's the, the his, his story, if you like, kind of goes like that up till now, and that's the point at which, it get, from now on, it goes like that. Um, the, the nation collapses, his family life collapses. God doesn't seem to um, give a positive answer to the prayer uh, in verses 7 to 12, if David said it. Uh, and as several of you noticed, uh, verse 4 uh, seems um, scandalously inappropriate on David's lips. Against you, you alone, have I sinned. I mean, if you're God and David says that to you, you bash him round the ears, don't you? And say, go away and think about it some more, boy. Uh, you might even hypothesise that David is actually, by saying those words, hi uh, hiding from his actual responsibility. 
It's easier to talk to God to say, oh, I sinned against you, than to deal with the fact that you sinned against those other people. Um, so maybe there's a connection between those facts. And then when you read the story in 2 Samuel and you read Psalm 51, um, you wonder whether David, in what sense did, did David say, express the kind of repentance in Psalm 51? Because um, that's you don't actually get that. It's a very weird story, really, the account of David's um, dealing with what he's done and talking to God about what he's done. Uh, the account in 2 Samuel chapter 12, um, where Nathan appears to him um, and catches him out by telling him a parable uh, and eventually says, You're the man! You despised the word of Yahweh. The sword will never depart from your house. And that's exactly what happened. God didn't withdraw that declaration of judgment. I will raise a trouble against you from within your own house. Yep, David did that. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. What did he mean? Nathan said to David, Now Yahweh has put away your sin. Some translations have David, uh, have God has forgiven your sin. But um, Nathan doesn't use a word that usually means forgive. You shall not die. Maybe that, that's all God means. That's all Nathan and God mean. The consequences of your sin are not going to be worked out. You deserve to die. But you're not going to die. Nevertheless, Nathan goes on, because by this deed you've utterly scorned Yahweh, the child that is born to you shall die. And David prays um, for the child not to die. And the child di dies. And when he perceived that the child was dead, David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He's dead. Then David rose from the ground, washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes, went into the house of Yahweh and worshipped, in the sense of bowed down, went to his own house, and when he asked, they set some food before him, and he ate. And his servants, pardonably, are bemused. What is this you've done? You fasted and wept for the child when it's alive, but when the child died, you rose and ate food. When the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows? Yahweh may be gracious to me, and the child may live. But now he's dead. He's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, I don't know what was going on in David uh, in, those, um, in, in those, those, those... That description of David is so enigmatic, and that's typical of the story of David, as the Old Testament tells it. It's very hard to, to work out what makes this guy tick? And that's what's really interesting about the story and challenging and keeps drawing you into it and wondering what's going on and causing you to learn from it and examine yourself in light of it. What I do know is that you don't clearly at all get any kind of impression from 2 Samuel 12 that the kind of thing that's going on in Psalm 51 was the kind of thing that was going on uh, in David. So, uh, what I suggest that the introduction to a psalm like Psalm 51 does is not um, necessarily make us think that simply David wrote this then, but uh, it pushes us towards putting the psalm and David, the psalm and David story alongside each other and, and looking for the points of, of clash and also the points of connection. There are points of connection, it's very appropriate. 
for David to ask God not to take his Holy Spirit from him. Uh, again, one or two of you picked up on that phrase and were surprised, I think, to find it. Um, this is just one of the two passages in the Old Testament that use the actual phrase Holy Spirit. Uh, the other one is Isaiah 63, um, which talks about God putting his Holy Spirit amongst the people at the time of the Exodus and then them grieving God's Holy Spirit in the way they related to him. Uh, it's, a, it's an odd phrase in a way, the expression Holy Spirit, because both the word holy and the word spirit are words that distinctively describe God. God is the, is, is the one who's really spirit, and God is the one who's really holy. So, uh, holy spirit is almost a, um, saying the same thing twice. Um, but uh, it's a phrase that, that expresses the, the supernaturalness and the distinctiveness of, uh, of God as the powerful God and the extraordinary supernatural God. And the psalm, if you link it with the king, is with David or with another king, reflects the fact that the king is in particular the one upon whom uh, the Holy Spirit needs to dwell in order for God to be able to work through him in the way that other psalms talk about. So the Isaiah 63 passage associates the Holy Spirit with the people as a whole. Uh, the, uh, the Psalm 51 passage associates the Holy Spirit uh, with the king in particular. Though I did mention the other week that um, we, need, we have to be careful with these I psalms with assuming that we know that they refer to the individual or that, but because they might refer to the ordinary individual, they might refer to the king, they might equally refer to the people as a whole. And it's worth, Psalm 51 is one of the psalms that it's worth reading three times. Once thinking about this as the confession of an ordinary individual, once thinking about this as a confession of a king, and once thinking about this as a confession of the whole people um, speaking as I. And you can see lots of ways, I think, in which Psalm 51 comes alive in new ways when you hear it on the lips of Israel in its relationship with God. And that then explains the puzzling fact that some people noticed that um, the end of the psalm makes it look as if uh, it's the, it's the, the psalm belongs in the time of the exile because that's when the walls of Jerusalem had been knocked down. In David's day, the walls of Jerusalem didn't need to be built up. In the exile, they did need to be built up. The exile was the great context in which Psalm 51 would need to be prayed by Israel as a whole. And when they are in a position to look forward to, to say, we can't offer any sacrifices because the temple's been knocked down. It's going to be great when you've made it possible for Jerusalem and the temple to re be rebuilt again and we'll be able to offer sacrifices again and restart that normal life with God that we're not able to live at the moment. So that would make sense. Um, a paradox about the interpretation of the psalm is that people either put such, such an emphasis on the introduction that refers to David and Bathsheba that they can't make sense of the last two verses and they say that has to be an addition. Or you... Um, uh, pay so much attention to the con main content of the psalm itself, including the ending, that you say about the introduction, well, that can't be the original thing. That must have been edited later. Um, it's hard to reckon that introduction and conclusion and main part all have the same origin. Um, as I've said at the very bottom of the sheet, uh, something similar happens to uh, a comparing of, the, of Psalm 51 with David's story to what happens when you compare Psalm 72 with Solomon's story, Psalm 72 that I referred to just now. Um, because when you look at the way that, that David uh, ran uh, being king, 
David, uh, sorry, I said that wrong, did I? Uh, the way that Solomon went about uh, being king, which has been described as the uh, beginning of the paganization of Israel, then you can see the irony uh, that there is in calling Psalm 72 Solomon's, Shlomo, Lishlomo. Because um, if you compare Solomon's story with the psalm, then uh, it, it, there's more contrast than comparison in terms of what Solomon uh, actually did. Um, does anyone want to say anything about Psalm 51? About that stuff that I was talking about? Uh, okay, on page 81 are two um, examples of how the Babylonians prayed for forgiveness. Uh, oh, here's hand-raising, oddly enough. Marduk, great Lord, compassionate God, who takes the hand of the fallen, who frees the fettered, who enlivens the dead. Because of my misdeed, known or unknown, I have been neglectful, have trespassed, slighted and sinned, as against my father, my begetter, against your great divinity. I have been neglectful, have trespassed, slighted and sinned. I have brought myself before your great divinity. May the waters of tranquility meet you, May your angry heart be quieted. May your sweet benevolence, your great forgiveness, your venerable pardon exist for me, so that, and then there's something missing. The glory of your great divinity, let me glorify. Um, the, uh, the square brackets are points at which the, uh, it's always the case with these ancient Eastern texts where the, um, uh, the archaeologists, the scholars, the readers have, um, weren't sure what the reading was and have tried to work it out. And then the second one, Marduk, compassionate one who enlivens the dead, who frees the fetid, who takes the hands of the fallen, who receives petitions and prayers, are you, against whom I have trespassed, slighted, sinned. With a pardon pleading prayer I enter to undo, to undo my iniquity. After your great divinity I walk. My sins, my misdeeds, my offences, which against my Lord I in this manner I do. Like an onion may it be peeled here, like a date may it be torn here, like a palm cord may it be relaxed here. May your sweet forgiveness, your great benevolence, your venerable pardon for your servant, for me, exist for me, so that I may live and may be healthy, so that I may praise your divinity. Um, well, I suggest maybe you'd like to discuss with the person next to you for a minute or two uh, what I was saying just now uh, about David in Psalm 51 and whether that makes sense. Um, and you could talk about the nature of those prayers, those are prayers to Marduk by Babylonians. If I hadn't told you that, if we moved, moved Marduk out, they'd have felt okay probably about as prayers of confession. Um, so you might like to think about what's simply human about confession uh, and what about confession uh, needs to be shaped by scripture. Talk to each other for two or three minutes about some of those things.
Say anything about any about any of that? If not, a look at Lamentations. Uh, so this is page eighty-two. <coughs> <coughs> 
Um, and here is much more systematically uh, within Scripture, most systematically within Scripture, uh, how to say you're sorry. Um, and you could, call, you could say that Lamentations is five uh, psalms of confession. Uh, within the Psalter itself, um, there are seven psalms that are, uh, have been traditionally viewed within the church as penitential psalms. Um, but most of them aren't really penitential psalms. Uh, and the designation of them shows how the church, for whatever reason, has had more interest in... Um, well, I suppose you could say more interest in worm more interest in worm theology than the um, than the Psalter had. So Psalm six is the first of the penitential Psalms, but it do, it isn't. It doesn't request doesn't express any penitence. Just talk about God's wrath, but it doesn't assume that God's wrath is because of um, wrongdoing. It doesn't confess any anyway. Psalm thirty two is the next, and that one does talk about sin, but it's not a penitential Psalm. It's a Psalm of thanksgiving for the fact that God has forgiven. Uh, psalm 38 is the third penitential psalm, um, and that does, does, that does refer to the fact that my iniquities have gone over my head. They weigh like a burden too heavy for me. Uh, but for the most part, it's a regular protest-type psalm. Psalm 51 uh, is the fourth, and that clearly is, that's, that's the penitential psalm uh, in this Psalter. Psalm uh, 102 um, is another psalm that's more like a protest but does acknowledge sinfulness. Uh, psalm 130 uh, is the one that starts out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, O Lord, hear my voice. It's the psalm that um, I mentioned at the beginning of talking about the psalms, uh, was the psalm through which Jorgen Maltman was converted. Um, uh, and it certainly refers to sin. You could call that's more like a penitential psalm. Uh, and then 143, um, which um, likewise has uh, sin as a subordinate uh, topic, but not. Um, it includes the phrase that uh, the, the, the plea, do not enter into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. Um, but it's more. Our kind of acknowledgement of sin may be in the sense that, not that I've done something terrible this week, but I know that every time I come to pray I need to acknowledge that I am a sinner. So there's not a huge amount of penitence, of confession uh, of sin within the Psalter. Uh, and Lamentations is a better, a better place to start in order to understand confession. The, the poems are five poems that come from after the fall of Jerusalem uh, in 587. Uh, and... Um, some of you asked about how closely we could put the dating. Um, my reading of them makes me think that the first four look much closer to the event itself. You get much more of a sense of people who've gone through the awfulness of what happened when Jerusalem was besieged and taken. Whereas in the fifth of the, of the laments, the exile, seemed to be going, exile seems to be going on a bit. Now, maybe that's not 50 years, maybe it's only five years, but that uh, because um, even five years would distance you a little bit from the event itself, uh, but that the earlier lamentations, the earlier poems, seem to be closer to the event itself. Each of them has 22 verses. Um, well, actually, number three has 66 verses, but if you can do the math, you'll see what I mean. Um, and uh, in each case, 
of, in, in the case of the first four, they are what I've called on the sheet alphabetical psalms. Um, I think, strictly speaking, an acrostic is something where the initial letters make a word. Um, and the initial letters of these psalms don't make a word. They simply go A, B, C, D, E, F, G, or the, the Hebrew equivalent to that. So, in Lamentations 1, the first word in the book, um, Aik, uh, is the word that means how. Uh, and, uh, uh, the, and it begins with an aleph, and the second verse begins with a bait, um, and the third verse begins with a gimel, the third letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and so on. Uh, the reason why chapter 3 is divided into 66 verses is that, even more cleverly, um, the psalmist gives you three verses that begin with aleph, and three verses, three verses that begin with bait, three verses that with, begin with gimel, uh, and so on. Uh, we don't know why the last of the five uh, poems um, has the 22 verses, but doesn't um, go alphabetical, it just doesn't. The usual view about why the, the form of an alphabetical psalm is used um, here, and also there are a number of, of, of psalms in the Psalter itself um, like that, is that uh, it enables you to express something, as we will put it, from A to Z. Um, and, and so each of these first four poems at least expresses grief and sorrow, sadness and contrition from A to Z. Gets it all out. It's also the case, it's, it's a particular example of a more general point, which is that the, the, the nature, taking, up any, taking on any kind of form imposes constraints upon you, but also opens up possibilities, makes you think of things. Um, and so there's that general point about any form that psalms, for instance, use, but the particularity of the alphabetical form uh, is that it enables you to express something from A to Z. The uh, lines have the same kind of parallelism in the same way as psalms do. How lonely sits the city that once was full of people. How like a widow she has become, she that was great among the nations. She that was a princess among the provinces has become a vassal. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among her, all her lovers she has no one to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile with, heart, with suffering and hard servitude. And maybe even in the lines there you can see and in the way that I was reading it, how it tends to be the case that the second half of the lines, well it is the case, rather consistently, that the second half of each line is shorter than the first half. Uh, that whereas the dominant metre in the Psalms, um, in particularly in connection with praise, is 3-3, three, three, the dominant metre in um, Lamentations is 3-2, as it, as, it, as, it as it is in some of the protest Psalms, the lament Psalms within the, culture, within the Psalter. So the second half of the line keeps bringing you up short in a way that reflects the way in which life itself is bringing you up short. Um, chapters 1 and 2 and 4 uh, are more like funeral laments than prayers. Uh, another way, in fact, in which, Psalm 50, Psalm, in which Lamentations 5 is different from the first four is that it is um, the most systematically prayerful. It begins with a prayer. Remember, Yahweh, what has befallen us. Uh, whereas uh, each of the other of the, uh, the first four each of the first four of the um, poems doesn't begin in prayer and either has no actual prayer in the sense of plea 
in it or only has some part way through. They fo- they're focusing more on grieving, on lamenting, on protest uh, in relation to what's happened. Um, the question, a question that arises is, if they are, they are like Psalms, they could have appeared in the Psalter, they wouldn't have seemed odd there, why aren't they there? Why are they a separate book? Um, and while that, I suppose there are two sorts of ways of giving, giving an answer to that. The Psalms, for the most part, uh, hide their uh, circumstances of origin. They don't um, show you a link with particular events. You can't get away from the fact that Lamentations links with the particular event of the fall of Jerusalem. Uh, and associated with that is um, a likely connection with um, worship, prayer, uh, in the remains of the temple in Jerusalem that lamented what had happened to it. Um, they are, to put it another way, the text for a specific liturgy. They were used um, in a regular way in connection with grieving over the fall of Jerusalem. And there are references that are given you there in the book of Zechariah from just after the exile and from Joel, from the book of Joel which maybe belongs in the same period but nobody really knows when Joel was written. They talk about occasions of fasting uh, and lamenting in the temple in Jerusalem and it involves a little bit of connecting dots but plausible connecting of dots to uh, imagine the lamentations as the prayers that were being used on those actions of fasting uh, that Zechariah and maybe also Joel refer to. Um, They are still used today uh, on the um, fasts associated with the 9th of Av, which roughly corresponds with the month of August, which is an occasion each year when the Jewish community uh, laments the various falls of Jerusalem. Um, And they are one of the five scrolls, along with Ruth and the Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes and Esther. And what those five scrolls have in common is that each of them is used in the Jewish community on some occasion each year, um, on on one one of the festival-type occasions, Lamentations occasion being that um, fasting uh, on the 9th of Av each year. Uh, Some comments about the individual uh, laments, which will bring out some of the uh, aspects about them and give me the chance to say one or two things about some things that people raised in their postings. Uh, Chapter 1, a notable feature is the way in which um, Mount Zion is personified as a city. It's it's a she, its daughter Zion. Uh, It describes how the disaster of the exile um, involved the deporting of the leadership uh, and thus what you've got in these laments is the ordinary people uh, mourning the city's fate. Uh, I've mentioned already how it's uh, often the Christian assumption that after the fall of Jerusalem in 587, the entire Judahite community was taken off to Babylon. And then after Babylon fell in in 539, just afterwards, the entire Judahite community came back. So that in between there was nobody living in Jerusalem and in Judah. That isn't actually the uh, account that the books of Kings and Jeremiah imply when they give you the numbers of people who were exiled, which tend to be four-figure type numbers, or maybe five-figure type numbers, uh, not six-figure, still less seven-figure type numbers. And that also um, corresponds 
uh, with the fact that evidently that it looks as if there were people there in Jerusalem and in Judah who were in a position to use these uh, poems uh, to go uh, to undertake the kind of fasting um, rituals, uh, occasions that, uh, that Zechariah uh, and Joel described, and the kind of people who could write them. That is, if the leadership and the prophets and the priests were taken away, uh, it, didn't leave any, it, di it didn't leave the community with nobody who was capable of writing really quite sophisticated poetry. That might link, link with the, um, the fact, again, that you get reference to in Jeremiah um, in particular, and a little bit in Kings, but mostly in Jeremiah, that also compromises the idea that the entire people of Judah would have been transported. Uh, which is that, that when there's a crisis, an invasion, while some people, maybe because they've got no choice, stay there and wait to be killed, a lot of people get out of here, don't they? Um, and the book of Jeremiah talks about the way in which people had fled from Jerusalem. Uh, and it's not difficult to... And, and, it, and very often it's the people with some power or some money who can do that. Um, and it wouldn't then be surprising if they slunk back uh, into the city after the Babylonians had gone. Um, and formed the community who uh, were amongst the community that would have been um, living on in Jerusalem and praying in this kind of way. A striking feature of Lamentations as a whole is the way in which, um, it, and it comes out first of all in this, uh, fairly near the beginning in this psalm, in this, lam in this lamentation, the way in which the community accepts responsibility for what's happened. Um, so, for instance, Jerusalem sinned grievously so that she has become a mockery. Yahweh is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They weighed on my neck, sapping my strength. The Lord handed me over to those I cannot withstand. Um, and, and that's the way in which, the, again, the Lamentations, as I say, are distinct over against the prayers that you read in the Psalter uh, and rather like the prayers that you read in Ezra and Nehemiah um, and Daniel. Somebody commented that in their posting and um, wondered if they were right to take responsibility like that uh, and noted how uh, Jesus says with regard to the man who had been born blind that it wasn't because of his sin that he was born, born blind. And that's true. Uh, but then on another occasion, uh, when, Jesus, when some friends of a man who is paralysed uh, lower him through the roof of somebody else's house, and wouldn't you like to have seen the look on the face of the guy whose roof has just been taken apart in order to lower uh, the stretcher down with this guy on? What are you doing to my roof? Why did I invite this guy, Jesus, into my house? I didn't know my house was going to get demolished as a consequence. Um, but, but anyway, Jesus says to the man, my son, your sins are forgiven. So whereas Jesus doesn't see a connection between sin and suffering in John 9, he sees a connection between sin and suffering in that other story. Uh, and that fits with the dual attitude to that question, actually that you get, you get elsewhere in the New Testament where Paul talks, for instance, about the thorn in his flesh, which he doesn't associate with his sin. Uh, but in, in, likewise, in writing to, Corinth, to the Corinthians, uh, talks in quite a worrying fashion. In 1 Corinthians 10. <coughs> uh, 
uh, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 11, about the danger of eating the bread and drinking the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and thus being answerable for the body and blood of the Lord, and says, Examine yourselves, and only then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For all who eat and drink without discerning the body, eat and drink judgment against themselves. For this reason many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. When we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined, so that we may not condemned along with the world. So, illness in the Corinthian community, issues from sin. Um, there's the same dual attitude within the Old Testament, uh, in that here in Lamentations, there's assumed to be a connection between sin and suffering on this occasion, whereas clearly a book like Job um, is uh, designed to point out that there isn't, there isn't always that connection. Um, so, the script, throughout, Scripture recognises there is sometimes a connection between sin and suffering, and sometimes not. Uh, and what you have to um, develop is the spiritual discernment to see whether on this occasion there's a link. Um, the, the guys in Lamentations um, assume that there is on this occasion and their self-perception corresponds to the one that is um, expressed, in expressed in narrative form in the story in Kings and in Chronicles that assumes that the community is responsible uh, for the fact that God eventually takes it off into exile. A note that recurs, um, one of the occurrences of it I read just now in Lamentations chapter 1 uh, is the uh, declaration that the people have no one to comfort them. All her friends have dealt treacherously with, uh, with her. Uh, so among all her lovers she has no one to comfort her. She has no, a comforter is far from me. There is no one to comfort her. The expression comes half a dozen times in the chapter. Uh, and it's against that background that you need to understand Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. S cry tenderly to Jerusalem, and speak tenderly to Jerusalem, and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from Yahweh's hand double for all her sins. Judah has gone into exile with, heart, with suffering and hard servitude, says Lamentations chapter 1. She has served her term, her penalty is paid, says Isaiah 40. I'm just realising that I could make another of those occurrences of the prayer testimony uh, kind of linkage by putting together Lamentations and Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40 is saying, you know those prayers you've been praying? Here's God's answer, comfort, comfort my people. Um, in Lamentations 2, the motif of Yahweh's anger is very strong um, and that makes us feel uncomfortable um, there are two different sorts of um, ways of understanding the significance of this great stress on Yahweh's anger um, which um, may, that may, may both have something to them uh, one is that often when the Old Testament when the Old Testament talks about Yahweh's anger, it's actually rather like when the New Testament talks about uh, Yahweh's curse uh, coming upon people, uh, or Yahweh abandoning the people, and the or God's God's curse um, uh, coming on people. I'm sorry, I, I haven't expressed that properly. I've got. Uh, let me start. Scrub that. Let me start again. 
when, when, when the New Testament talks about God's wrath coming on people, uh, it, isn't, it, it often at least isn't talking about so much about a feeling on God's part as an action on God's part, which is then more like the equivalent to, way, to the way that the Old Testament talks about a curse. Uh, when, God talk, when, when Romans talks about God's wrath being worked out, it's not so much talking about the strength of God's feelings, it's talking about the way in which God, God is bringing judgment. Uh, and its Old Testament equivalent is more the, um, the way that the Old Testament talks about curse than the way that the Old Testament talks about wrath on many occasions. It doesn't, apply, it doesn't necessarily apply strong feeling. And uh, sometimes that's significant with regard to the way the Old Testament talks about God's wrath. Uh, and I think that's the case uh, with Psalm 6, which I read the opening verse of again just now which begins, Yahweh, do not rebuke me in your anger, or discipline me in your wrath. It doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that the psalm is aware of God feeling anger. Uh, it's just that the psalm is aware of having just been belted around the ear, of having been treated in the way that you would treat somebody if you were angry. But the reference is more to the objective action than to the feeling that lies behind it. And that's partly the case when... Um, uh, when the Old Testament then talks about anger, as is the case with the New Testament. The other, which is kind of in contrast with that, is that the good news about the fact that God gets angry is that God does have all those feelings of a human person. God actually is a person, in the way that I was talking about at the beginning this evening. If you don't get angry, there's something wrong, something adrift with you as a person. If you're not angry about a lot of things in the world, there's something wrong with you as a person. Jesus got angry, God gets angry, uh, normal human beings get angry, not because they're sinners, but because they're not sinners. Of course, you do get angry because you're a sinner as well, but part of the way in which humanity is created in the image of God is with feelings which we misdivide between good feelings and bad feelings when we think that love and faithfulness and mercy are always good and anger and hatred are always bad. Because that's not the way that the Bible sees it. Uh, the Bible sees that all those feelings as morally neutral. Uh, that, that sometimes it's the wrong thing to show mercy to people. So God doesn't. Um, and, uh, and sometimes it's the wrong thing to be angry with people. Sometimes it's the right thing to show mercy to people. Sometimes it's the right thing to be angry with people. They are all part of being a person. Um, and... Uh, the, the good news of the way the Old Testament talks about God is that God has the whole gamut of feelings that are involved in being a person. Um, and the further bit of good news about that is that as you are a person who be, feels both mercy and love and anger and hatred, by feeling both of those sorts of things, that's part of your being made in God's image. Um, what you have to learn to do is to be loving and merciful when God would be loving and merciful, and angry and hateful with regard to what God would be angry and hateful with. There is then further in chapter 2 um, vivid description of the horror of the nature of the fall of Jerusalem. My eyes are spent with weeping, my stomach churns. My bile is poured out on the ground because of the destruction of my people because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? Who are they? I mean, don't they have an age thing in Jerusalem? That's why I never understand. As they faint like the wounded in the streets of the city, 
as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Um, it, it is evidently, it was a horrendous experience to be in that siege of Jerusalem. Um, at least as awful is the disproving of a vision, um, of an understanding of God, of promises that God had given them. Verse 15. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at door to Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? And those are not phrases that Lamentation simply makes up or that the enemy makes up. They're phrases that come out of the Psalms. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in, in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. And Lamentations imagines enemies asking, is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth then? Uh, in chapter 3, an individual speaks um, and uh, that makes Lamentations 3 more like a psalm maybe and maybe explains part of the reason for the link with Jeremiah, the link that's been made with Jeremiah. The, the Lamentations themselves don't mention Jeremiah. Uh, the title of the book in Hebrew, as with, as, as with, as with most Old Testament books, is the first word, Echah, how, um, the, the process that happened with this scripture as with many scriptures though is that subsequently people were not satisfied as we are not with not, with not knowing who wrote the thing uh, and so they asked themselves who might have written Lamentations? Answer, well Jeremiah might have done we know that Jeremiah went in for lamenting this psalm speaks in the first person in a Jeremiah kind of way um, and, uh, and, and its theology fits exactly with Jeremiah Jeremiah wouldn't be embarrassed by um, the Lamentations. Uh, but the, so the idea that they are the Lamentations of Jeremiah comes from the, is an addition in the Septuagint translation uh, of Jeremiah and thus gets, in, gets into the King James Bible uh, but not into modern Bibles. But as usual, the, the authorship of prayers is not the significant thing about them for understanding them. A noteworthy feature of chapter 3 is the way in which the first and the second and the third person verbs come as they do in psalms that speak about what God has done what, what God has done and what I am feeling and what they have done the three angles of suffering that come in the psalms come in lamentations it's a context uh, in which the person who speaks on behalf of the community um, acknowledges how hope has gone. He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, gone is my glory and all that I, that I had hoped for from Yahweh. And thus is a pain of remembering. The thought of my affliction and my homelessness is wormwood and gall. It's really bitter. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of Yahweh never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You knew those words, didn't you? But you didn't know where they came from. 
And aren't they powerful when you read them in the context of what you've just read? That's an extraordinary statement of faith. An astonishing reversal. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. So that these verses talk about those other passions of Yahweh. He has the passion of anger, but he also has the passion of steadfast love and compassion and faithfulness. Yahweh is good to those who wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation, the deliverance of Yahweh. Um, and it's those other passions of God's that makes it possible to have hope. It is good for one to bear the yoke in youth, to sit alone in silence when the Lord has imposed it, to put one's mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope to give one's cheek to the smiter and be filled with insults. For Yahweh, for the, sorry, for the Lord, it's Lord in small letters, so sometimes here it's the, it's the genuine word for Lord. For the Lord will not reject forever. Although he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. There's that word again. And here is the last, now comes the last line in the first half of the book. The last line in the middle, at the middle, uh, of the middle of the, th of the five poems. And listen to what it says at the very heart of the book. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. Now, isn't that an, astonishingly, an astonishing thing to say about God? That God does things unwillingly. That sounds like a contradiction. He does not willingly afflict or grieve anyone. It's um, uh, even more significant, I think, um, in the more literal way in which the Hebrew works. Because what it says more literally is that he doesn't afflict anybody from the heart. He does it, but he doesn't come from his heart. Uh, and the significance of that, I think, is it, is it helps to nuance something about the, the nature of those passions. Uh, it fits with the description of Yahweh uh, that Yahweh in person gives on Sinai when he's just been involved in um, punishing the Israelites. When he gives a description of himself that gives you the two sides to God's character, that the, but that makes clear what is the dominant side to God's character. Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children, children's children to the third and fourth generation. Both sides of God's character are there, but more space is given in that description of God in Exodus 34 that recurs in a number of parts of the Old Testament than is given to the negative judgmental side to God's character. What Lamentations is here saying is something equivalent. That God has the capacity to um, afflict and grieve, but it doesn't come from God's heart. Uh, that, uh, to put it in terms of, the, um, of one of the ways of describing how we work as persons, God has a dominant side and a shadow side. Well, now when you talk about us having a dominant side, the shadow is not negative. It means simply not dominant. We have a parts of our aspects of our character that are kind of up front and central to us uh, and aspects of us that, that are less uh, dominant, that are rather subordinate. Uh, and we can pull those up when necessary, but they, they aren't as, as central to us. So um, uh, it's the case that the average um, professor uh, is not somebody who actually is very kind of like this. Now some professors are like this. 
but most professors are rather kind of shy characters who like being on their own. Um, but in order to stand at the front of the classroom, they summon up their capacity to um, public speak. But at the end of it, they're totally exhausted and they go home and they have to go to sleep. Now that's, yeah, seriously, that's, that, I mean, not seriously, but I don't know that they go home and go to sleep. But, but that there are, there are, some of us are kind of quiet by nature, uh, but have the capacity to do the public speaking thing. Others of us are quite happy about the public speaking thing and need to find time to be quiet and on our own. And there are other ways in which we have dominant and subordinate side to our character. What Lamentations is here um, suggesting, and what Exodus 34 is suggesting, is that God has a dominant side to his character, but also a subordinate side. The dominant side is the loving and faithfulness and mercy. The subordinate side is the wrathful, is the wrathful the hatred, the, willing, the willingness to um, uh, afflict and grieve. So it's there in God, and, go and God can realise it and take it on and express it when necessary, but it's not, and it's quite natural, but it's not central to God to be like that. Now, often people talk as if justice and love in God are equally balanced. That's not the Old Testament opinion. Justice and love in God are not equally balanced. Um, justice in that negative sense, in the negative sense, is the subordinate thing near the edge of God's character. Love is what's at the centre of God's character. Although he causes grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love because he doesn't willingly afflict. It isn't from the heart that he afflicts or grieves anyone. So, um, Yahweh is angry only unwillingly. Um, God's always been like that, and that's how it is that God can forgive before Jesus comes along. That, but it's still necessary for Jesus come, to come along and offer that ultimate sacrifice that we were talking about at the very beginning. Um, it's only on the basis of God being the kind of God who would do that um, that God forgives now. It's because God is that kind of God that God eventually sends Jesus. Yeah? Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't quite understand what you meant by justice in the negative sense. Um, judgment. Uh, ju justice, uh, because um, justice often in the, uh, in, the, in, in the Old Testament is doing justice for somebody, doing justice to the poor is a positive idea. Justice in the, when people talk about love and justice, they tend, they, they tend to mean justice in the sense of bringing punishment. And that's, that, that's the sense in which I was using justice. Yeah. Um, it's all that, then, that makes uh, an appeal for um, an appeal to the people uh, for repentance possible. Let's test and examine our ways and return to Yahweh. Let's lift up our hearts as well as our hands to God in heaven. We've transgressed and rebelled and you've not forgiven. But because of that nature of God in which even when you're under judgment, you know that the dominant side to God's personality is love and mercy. That's what makes it possible to come to God in repentance. Uh, chapter four, in chapter 4, um, there's reversion to pained and concrete description um, of how things uh, were um, at the, on the occasion of the, um, of the fall of Jerusalem and the aftermath. Um, and there's a further lament at the failure of a vision, or the failure of God's promise, if you like. Yahweh's anointed, that's that word Messiah, Mashiach. Yahweh's Mashiach, the breath of our life, that is the one upon whom our life depended, was taken in their pits, the one of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the, among the nations. God's going to look after us on the basis of that commitment to David and to Zion, but it hasn't happened. 
Chapter 5 is then the least concrete and um, the most psalm-like of the laments. Um, and it, uh, it thus means that there is a sense in which Lamentations is moving forward. It's, it's kind of circular, uh, concentric, because the two poems, uh, the, the two we poems on either side of the I poem, but it also kind of moves forward uh, and ends with an extraordinarily bold way like a psalm, um, but also as a kind of question. Restore us to yourself, Yahweh, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. Unless you've utterly rejected us and are angry with us beyond measure. And it runs out in some dots, rather like Psalm 88, really. Um, I didn't refer to the verse about eating children, which somebody asked about, and I wondered whether that kind of thing is literal or not. Um, in desperate circumstances, people do eat uh, human body parts. I don't imagine, in other words, they're talking about eating light. They're not talking about killing children to eat them. Uh, but babies are going to die in a siege earlier uh, than grown-ups are. Uh, and in desperate circumstances like that, people do eat body parts. So I don't see why it shouldn't be um, a, horrific descrip horrific a horrific description of a horrific thing that mothers were driven to. But maybe it's, uh, it's a metaphor. Um, I don't know. And there are obviously lots of metaphors here in the, uh, in the way the poetry works. Okay, see you next week.